Good morning. Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth, meaning, and beauty, and we welcome each of you here today. I'm Chris Jimerson. I'm Minister for Program Development here at the church, and I have with me your terrific lay leader, Margaret Borden. We especially want to welcome our visitors this morning. We're so glad you're here, and we hope you'll join us for coffee and conversation in Housen Hall after the service. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person. And it's in that tradition that I invite you to turn to those around you and greet the holy among us this morning. It is also our tradition in Unitarian Universalist churches to begin our services by lighting a chalice, which is a symbol of our faith. Please say with me our words for lighting the chalice. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Our call to worship this morning is a responsive reading. The title is, We Travel This Road Together by Tess Baumberger. From the busyness of every day, we gather once a week to remember who we are, to dream of who we might become. We travel this road together. As companions on this journey, we share the milestones we meet along the way. Individual moments of joy and sorrow become shared moments of comfort and celebration. We travel this road together. We share this journey across differences of belief and opinion because we value diversity and because we care for one another. We travel this road together. Today, as we take the next steps, let us notice our fellow travelers, the burdens that they carry, the songs that inspire their hearts. We travel this road together. As we gather in beloved community, let us open the holy havens of our hearts. Let us share the sacred places of our souls, for we are pilgrims who share a common path. We travel this road together. Unitarian Universalism is a faith without creed. We don't have a set of beliefs that we all have to sign on to and agree with. So sometimes we get asked, well, if you don't all believe the same thing, what holds you together as a faith community? Well, I think we have a lot that holds us together. In our larger Unitarian Universalism, we have a set of seven principles and a set of sources that hold us together. In this church, we have a set of religious values we have discerned, and out of those values arose our mission. It's our common purpose, and we say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Our meditation reading is a poem entitled, Having Come This Far by James Broughton. I've been through what my through was to be. I did what I could and couldn't. I was never sure how I would get there. I nourished an ardor for thresholds, for stepping stones, and for ladders. I discovered detour and ditch. I swam in the high tides of greed. I built sandcastles to house my dreams. I survived the sunburns of love. No longer do I hunt for targets. 
I've climbed all the summits I need to, and I've eaten my share of lotus. Now I give praise and thanks for what could not be avoided and for every foolhardy choice. I cherish my wounds and their cures and the sweet innervations of bliss. My book is an open life. I wave goodbye to absolutes and send my regards to infinity. I'd rather be blithe than correct. Until something transcendent turns up, I splash in my poetry puddle and try to keep God amused. Now is the time in our service when we breathe together. Breathing in, breathing out, feeling the loving presence of those all around us. We follow our breath to a deeper place inside. We journey into that source of greater wisdom, that place of greater compassion and love, that spark of the divine within each of us. And dwelling there, we enter into a time of sacred silence together remembering that human sounds and the sounds of small children are a part of that silence in this congregation. Breathing in, breathing out, we now enter into that time of sacred silence together.
Zen Buddhism has a story in which a man is atop a horse which is galloping very, very quickly down a road. A woman standing alongside the road shouts up at him, Where are you going? It seems like it must be a really, really important destination. To which the man replies, I don't know. Ask the horse. Sometimes life's journey can seem that way, can't it? Like we're being carried along with much less control than we like to think. Like so much of what happens to us that can suddenly change the direction of our journey is random and beyond our control. Illness, falling in love, death, accidents, sudden and unexpected experiences of beauty, joy, awe, and wonder. This month... Our Lifespan Faith Development Religious Education classes and activities are exploring this concept of journey. And that's a big topic. There are so many ways to think about journey. There are so many types of journeys we take, from literal geographical travel to thinking of life as a journey. And we often talk about our exploration of spirituality as a journey, and that can mean journeying inward, outward, or both. And so often, our spiritual journeys, our journeys for personal growth, involve not just becoming our potential full and true selves, but in order to do so, also leaving behind unbecoming identities, ideas, and beliefs we were taught earlier in life involving religion, gender, race, sexuality, and so much more. Facing life's inevitable difficulties and struggles, as well as moving through life passages, coming of age, marriage, beginning or ending a career, as examples, can all seem like their own distinct journeys, even while they are also wrapped up within the overall journey of life. And as I mentioned earlier, so much of what happens to us during life's journey is beyond our control. Like the man on the horse in our Zen story, we have some agency. We can try to point our journey in a general direction through the education we obtain, the spiritual and health practices in which we engage, the relationships we cultivate, and the like. But like that spirited horse in our story, our life events kind of have a mind of their own, and our journey can suddenly be altered by unexpected events that cause our lives to go galloping off in a different direction whether we like it or not, sometimes. And so, to make some sense of our journey, we create a narrative. We tell ourselves a story to make meaning in our lives. And it is through these stories that we tell ourselves how we respond to the events of our journey that we may find more agency. Now, this isn't complete agency because much of the story we create is unconscious and the events of our own ongoing journey keep altering the narrative we're creating for ourselves. However, the opposite is also true. The stories we tell ourselves can also alter the direction of our journey. And this is especially true if we take the time to examine what implicit unconscious narratives we're creating for ourselves, thereby bringing them into our consciousness, making them explicit. By doing so, we can change the story if it's one that's not helping us, if it's one that's pointing our journey in an unhealthy and harmful direction. Frank Lloyd Wright, perhaps the greatest architect of the 20th century, 
told the story of how he used to visit his uncle's farm. One winter when he was nine, Wright and his uncle took a walk across a snow-covered field. His uncle stopped the young Wright and pointed to the tracks in the snow they had left behind. His uncle said to him, Notice how your tracks meander all over the place, from fence to cattle to the woods again, while mine go in a straight line from start to finish, aiming directly at my goal. There is an important lesson for life in that. Well, years later, Wright realized he was going to have to unlearn that story his uncle had implanted in his young mind that day. To become the architect he wanted, to live the life he wanted, he was going to have to avoid walking that straight line. It was then I determined, said Wright, not to miss most things in life as my uncle had. He had taken a story that had been implicit all those years and made it explicit and then changed it to a story that better suited the journey he wanted to pursue. Now, of course, the problem is, the problem is recognizing these subliminal stories we're telling ourselves so that we can change them to be more beneficial narratives can be very difficult, can't it? So I want to share with you a few thoughts that might be helpful for doing so. Now, many of you are likely familiar with author and comparative mythology, comparative religion scholar Joseph Campbell's concept of the hero's journey. Here's a short video, though, that takes us through all the key components of this concept. What do Harry Potter, Katniss Everdeen, and Frodo all have in common with the heroes of ancient myths? What if I told you they are all variants of the same hero? Do you believe that? Joseph Campbell did. He studied myths from all over the world and published a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, retelling dozens of stories and explaining how each represents the monomyth or hero's journey. So, what is the hero's journey? Think of it as a cycle. The journey begins and ends in the hero's ordinary world, but the quest passes through an unfamiliar, special world. Along the way, there are some key events. Think about your favorite book or movie. Does it follow this pattern? Status quo, that's where we start. One o'clock, call to adventure. The hero receives a mysterious message, an invitation, a challenge. Two o'clock, assistance. The hero needs some help, probably from someone older, wiser. Three o'clock, departure. The hero crosses the threshold from his normal, safe home and enters the special world and adventure. We're not in Kansas anymore. Four o'clock. Trials. Being a hero is hard work. Our hero solves a riddle, slays a monster, escapes from a trap. Five o'clock. Approach. It's time to face the biggest ordeal, the hero's worst fear. Six o'clock. Crisis. This is the hero's darkest hour. He faces death and possibly even dies, only to be reborn. At seven o'clock, treasure. As a result, the hero claims some treasure, special recognition, or power. Eight o'clock, result. This can vary between stories. Do the monsters bow down before the hero, or do they chase him as he flees from the special world? Nine o'clock, return. After all that adventure, the hero returns to his ordinary world. 10 o'clock, new life. 
This quest has changed the hero. He has outgrown his old life. 11 o'clock, resolution. All the tangled plot lines get straightened out. 12 o'clock, status quo, but upgraded to a new level. Nothing is quite the same once you're a hero. Campbell said that he found these hero myths in all cultures, and he believed it was because they help us make sense of the challenges, fears, and difficulties we face in our own journeys. We all face problems in life. We all have to get out of our comfort zone sometimes. And yet, and yet, how often has it been difficulty, failure, even loss that has eventually led you to an experience of transformation? What if we all thought of ourselves as on that hero's journey, or to avoid misogyny and gender binaries, sheroes or theros journeys? Might that help us live more richly and fully? If we could see ourselves as moving through the cycle described in our video, might it help us change what could otherwise be an unhelpful narrative that we have constructed when confronted with challenges we fear? Campbell once said, In the cave you fear to enter lies the treasure you seek. David White is a poet and philosopher that has another concept that I think can help us construct more helpful narratives. I want to let you hear him briefly describe what he calls the conversational nature of reality. What actually happens is this frontier between what you think is you and what you think is not you. And this frontier of actual meeting between what we call a self and what we call the world is the only place, actually, where things are real. But it's quite astonishing how little time we spend at this conversational frontier and not abstracted away from it in one strategy or another. I was, uh, I was uh, coming through uh, immigration, uh, which is quite a dramatic border at the moment into the U.S. last year, and, you know, you get off an international flight across the Atlantic, you're not in the best place. You're not at your most spiritually mature. You're quite impatient with the rest of humanity, in fact. So that when you get up to immigration with your shirt collar out and a day's growth of beard, and you, uh, you have very little patience, and the uh, immigration officer said, looked at my passport, and they said, what do you do, Mr. White? I said, I work with the conversational nature of reality. <clears throat> and he leaned forward over his podium and he said, I needed you last night. I love that story because I think the immigration officer grabbing his attention so humorously demonstrates this conversational nature of reality. It changed the story he was telling himself about that immigration officer. And one of the false stories I think we tell ourselves over and over and over again is that we can construct an identity separate and apart from our world and from other people when in fact... In fact, we can only do so in relationship to all that we encounter. This is the conversational reality of our journey. 
White talks about having spent almost two years in Galapagos, paying deep attention to the animals, birds, and landscapes around him. He began to realize, he says, my identity actually depended on how much attention I was paying to things that were other than myself. And that as you deepen this intentionality and this intention, you start to broaden and deepen your own sense of presence. One more fellow I want to let you know about is named Larry Smith. He's an author, journalist, and editor. He stumbled upon another tool that I think could be very, very useful in helping us unearth the implicit stories we may be telling ourselves about our journeys. Smith heard a legend about Ernest Hemingway being challenged to write a novel in six words and Hemingway's powerful response to that challenge. Now, I'm not going to share the response today because it could emotionally trigger some folks that are with us this morning, but if you want to know about it, you can ask me one-on-one later. Anyway, based on this, Smith started a project he calls Six-Word Memoirs. In Six-Word Memoirs, he asked people to describe where they currently are on their journey, tell their current story, tell their state of mind in six words. He invented a website for folks to do so. And I think this is a potentially powerful way to access our unconscious stories, to get at the emotional content, because to do so, we have to engage our most creative selves in order to get our story out in just those six words. Some of the memoirs, six-word memoirs that I read that people have shared range from poignant to humorous to both. I'm going to share a few examples with you. You can see more at www.sixwordmemoirs.com. That's six spelled out, S-I-X. Dad's funeral, daughter's birth, flowers everywhere. Someone should have objected at my wedding. Down for maintenance. Be back soon. Ex-wife and contractor have a house. I have Asperger's. What's your excuse? Tore up my own suicide letter. We're the family you gossip about. Forged through fire, sustained by friendship. Life is better in soft pajamas. Life's GPS keeps saying, recalculating, recalculating. After cancer, I became a semicolon. Again, what the hell just happened? I confess I may have written that last one after experiencing several unexpected, potentially life-changing, and certainly challenging life events all within a short time period. I want to invite you, as you're moved to do so, to think about what you might write as your six-word memoir. We put some pins and post-it pads around the sanctuary, and there's more on a table in the foyer in front of the windows that look out over the uh, sanctuary, I mean, over the, uh, the garden over here on this side on the left. Um, and I invite you, if you choose to share your story, to please post it on those same windows looking out from the foyer. You don't have to include your name if you don't want to. 
Cheating by using contractions is allowed. Six words. That brings me to the last thought about unearthing our stories I'd like to discuss today. I think a wonderful purpose that this church serves is sharing our stories like this in this, our beloved religious community. A couple of Saturdays ago, I was here for the launch of the monthly First Arts at First UU presentations our gallery ministry team is presenting. These allow artists to showcase their work. Church member Shirley Steele shared with us some of her wonderful artwork. Even more so, I was so touched with how she shared with us some of her journey as an artist, as well as some of her personal story, because after all, you can't really separate the two. Now, at the same time that was going on, an Austin Chamber Music concert was going on here in the sanctuary. It was right after we'd gotten permission from the city of Austin to use the new sanctuary edition and hadn't even had our first service in it ourselves. Somehow, though, it seemed appropriate, even touching to me, that one of our partners, with whom we've chosen time after time to journey, would be getting to use the new space even before we had. Here at church, we walk our spiritual journeys together in beloved community. Our journeys can bump up against each other and those of our partners with whom we journey. And that can sometimes help us turn our journeys in more life-fulfilling, life-giving, creative directions. We can share our stories with each other from a place of trust and vulnerability. We can sometimes even help each other rewrite the story we're telling ourselves if needed to make our most life-fulfilling journey more possible. Like with Campbell's hero's journey, being capable of changing our stories in ways that turn our journey towards transformation is an almost divine-like ability. Helping each other to do so is a gift of grace we can give to one another. And amen to that. Now please say with me our words for extinguishing the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Come and go with me to that land. Come and go with me to that land. Come and go with me to that land where This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at 
austinuu.org.